Welcome to the Great Good Podcast. I'm Brian. And I'm Don. And we've spent the last decade plus working with passionate communicators, activists, and do-gooders around the country. We also host a conference called Create Good, where we gather folks to share their work and create a community for people trying to make the world a better place. The Create Good Podcast is a conversation with changemakers and rabble-rousers to find out what makes them tick and how they create good. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. This is uh, Brian from the future here. Just a couple of notes before we get started with this fantastic interview with Chanel. Uh, she lives in uh, New York City, so you're going to hear some city noises, and I hope that adds to your listening experience today. Chanel talks about some books and resources that have inspired her throughout her career and her journey. Those will be linked in the episode notes, so you don't have to pause and go digging around. And finally, uh, a little light trigger warning for everyone out there. There's a little bit of discussion around uh, violence and trauma in this episode. Uh, so please take care of yourself if you feel like you need to skip this one. And enjoy. So I'm so glad to welcome Chanel to the podcast today. I first met her way back in 2017, which seems impossible. And she was kind enough to speak at Create Good that year. She's an activist, a communicator, a teacher, and so much more. And one of the most brilliant people I think I've ever met. And an all-around badass, honestly. So, Chanel, thank you, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Brian, for having me today. It's good to be here. Let's start uh, just a little bit about you, kind of give people a little overview. What's Can you start with kind of your name and little bit of like what you do, where you're at, and, um, you know, what you're about. Sure. Yeah. So I, my name is Chanel Matthews. And um, right now I serve as the director of communications for the Movement for Black Lives, which is an ecosystem of 150 organizations working to build shared power for Black people. And um, M4BL, many of your listeners may know, uh, was formed in the wake of the Ferguson uprisings, really galvanized after the brutal death of Mike Brown. It was forged in many ways through collective trauma and rage and power. Um, this ecosystem is uh, full of Black-led organizations and different uh, other formations uh, nationwide that organize around a shared purpose to significantly reduce state violence, including police terror, but not limited to it. And um, we're trying to amass significant political power to influence national and local agendas in the direction of our vision for Black Lives, which is a policy platform that um, comprehensively lays out um, a framework for a society that values Black lives, repairs past harms, and, and also invests in Black communities. So that's, that's what I do um, in terms of my day-to-day -day work is um, in service of M4BL. I've been a member of M4BL since 2015. And when I'm when I'm not doing that, but in relationship to it, I um, help to grow and nurture a network of communications, social justice communications, strategists and directors and, you know, whatever kind of role people hold. Um, I, I, the word professional always feels so weird to me, like I wanted to say social justice communications professional, but I don't know, it feels <laughs> like kind of corporate and weird. So I mean, it's not that we're not professionals, but I don't know. What does it mean to be professional? That feels a little bit like 
I don't know, um, weird. But um, but the Radical Communicators Network is a place where we we tie social justice communicators to political opportunity and action, and you know have deep conversations about the role of the field, um, the role of social justice communications in world building and movement building, and try to offer different opportunities to grow our skills. You know, we do these monthly rad sessions where we teach what we know. We talk about things like fat liberation in relationship to social justice and why we need to have more conversations about fatness and, um, you know, how to build out a theory of change for your organization that's rooted in, in communications theory. And, you know, we're five years old now, but we're um, still, you know, feeling very in our infancy and new and, and very much so decentralized. I have committed to keeping it a nimble network that is for the people, by the people, um, not tied to any brand, but, you know, hoping that we can, we're not trying to be, um, you know, secretive about it. We want to radicalize people. <laughs> we want people who come into the social justice communications field with an eye for marketing or a background in market-based strategies to arrive at a place where they use power-based strategies to build social, to work for social justice. So, um, fi finally, I teach a class at the new school. Um, for the last six years, I've been teaching critical theory and social justice with the emphasis in black resistance and black resistance from 1960 to the present. And this fall, I'm super excited to teach a class on resistance narratives in 21st century social movements. Um, I grew up in Los Angeles, but I live in New York now. It seems like you've come through nonprofits through activism. Is that, would that be a fair thing? Like kind of a feeling like a, it's a an output or did you have, were you always interested in kind of the, the nonprofit space? I was never interested in nonprofits um, as a place to work. It just so happens that the work that I do is done inside of a nonprofit structure. Um, and, you know, I think that how I arrived at this work is, you know, for many of us is a story that is layered. I would say for me personally, I had from a young child, an internal ethic uh, that was strong, a desire to see fairness in my home, in my community and in the world around me. And really was graded when things were unfair or people were being mistreated, including my siblings and, you know, my classmates and family members. So um, it, I think it started there, the desire to want to be a part of something that was meaningful, that led to different kinds of change, though I didn't really know what that was at that time. I was a bit of a rebel in, in high school. Um, and I, my parents loved me very much. And I think on reflecting back now, they didn't know what to do with a, a child who had such a demonstrable desire to want to change things, but who was like really unclear about how to do that. So I was a bit of a mess and remained so, you know, through my twenties. Um, I went to school in Louisiana. I, I grew up in Los Angeles and then a little bit in the Midwest when my mom got married, remarried in her in the nineties and the mid nineties. Um, but my, my family is, has a, a history and a story that is very clearly a kind of black American story. My great grandmother, Odessa, uh, uh, migrated from Northeast Louisiana to Inglewood, California in the 
1940s and 1950s, early 1950s. And so she was part of the second great migration. And subsequently, my family was also part of an, an incredible, um, you know, experience in Los Angeles, you know, from mid 20th century to the to the 90s, right, where we saw uprisings in the Watts uprisings. Um, we saw the, you know, introduction of the gangs in Los Angeles, which were in response to white supremacist formations in California, um, the war on the wars on poverty and drugs, and as well as HIV, AIDS, and the crack epidemic. And that was, you know, all happening in the second half of the 20th century. And Black communities were significantly impacted by that. And my family is included in that, um, that experience of mass incarceration and overdose and deaths, you know. So I think part of it is also like um, my own reckoning with where I come from and the issues that impacted my family in relationship to what I was feeling passionate about. So when I ended up going to school in Louisiana, I went to LSU, I became an activist on campus. And again, I wasn't, I knew that I had that kind of internal ethic to want to do something. So I, you know, started an organization, co-founded an organization called the Conscious Black Society. So funny to think about now, I mean, this is 2004. And wow. And, um, you know, became the vice president of the Voices for Planned Parenthood, you know, felt really connected to issues of reproductive health rights and justice at the time of racial justice and of queer liberation as a queer person on campus as one of the only, you know, out and loud queer people on campus. Like I arrived at doing social justice work in part because of who I was, who I am in the world. Um, because of my internal ethic, but also because of the things that I started to learn and experience in school. And I, you know, I will say, I don't know that I ever planned to go to college. Like my, my, my mother went to school when I was in school. She went back to get her associate's degree when I was in high school. And um, then, you know, started getting more degrees. And that was really the first kind of person I knew who went to school. So it was a really awesome experience to have. And also, you know, I was rife with guilt because other people in my family didn't get the same experience. But I will say, like, you know, organizing in the South, in Baton Rouge at LSU, really changed my understanding of power, of what it meant to radicalize people, to politicize people, to make the invisible visible. It was a very interesting experience to be surrounded by Confederate flags on our campus and to recognize the limitations of our administration on campus. And really my first kind of foray into how to negotiate power for people who were, you know, feeling underrepresented or oppressed. Um, you know, college campuses are good for that. So um, I went to journalism school and, um, you know, also saw limit limitations there for me. I graduated in 2008 at the height of the recession and I was working part-time at a women's newspaper that's actually still around, Women's E-News. Um, and it's still called Women's E-News, which I think is awesome. Um, and waiting tables at night. And um, that was 2008. Um, I spent a couple years in reality television, which was really rough experience for me. I was incredibly unhappy um, and didn't fit in at all. And then when I was in 2010, I took my first nonprofit job 
um, as an administrative and development associate for an organization that used to be called Law Students for Reproductive Justice, but is now called If, When, How, and is leading um, in the fight to ensure that we have equitable, safe access to abortion care, even in this moment. So I'm, I'm glad to be a part of that lineage. And and then in terms of the nonprofit kind of structure, you know, I mean, these nonprofit institutions are set up really as proxies for the rich to be able to kind of assuage themselves of the guilt that they have for ruining the world. Um, and I'm just, you know, I, I'm aware that we need these kind of institutions right now based on the conditions that we live in to, you know, pass through money and to be accountable to the government and so on and so forth. I believe in the power of organizations because I believe in the power of organizing, but I think that, you know, nonprofits have limitations and we also must be mindful that the history of the nonprofit infrastructure is really rested on white wealthy women looking for something to do with their time and therefore comes with a kind of sense of benevolence if you will um, and not an inherent sense in kind of power building or justice and so just to be mindful of how we understand our role in the world i i'm on purpose and clear that my role is to build narrative power for black social movements and i happen to do that through a nonprofit infrastructure but even if i were not inside of a nonprofit that would still be my job i was curious about the this kind of this real ingrained sense of right and wrong and fairness that seems to shape everything like when did you think that did that form was that early on did that really kind of get solidified in uh, at lsu or tell me about that process that's a really good question. I would say before going to LSU, I would say it was really, I explored it there, right? As like a, um, somebody who was perceived as a leader on campus. Although now, you know, when I look back, I mean, I didn't do a lot of self-reflection at that time. I was just um, pursuing my passions kind of, you know, without, I think what is necessary for my leader, which is the kind of constant self-reflection of your own beliefs and behaviors. Uh, I think it really happened at, at home. Um, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to talk about, uh, frankly, but, you know, all of us kind of have experiences as children, as adolescents, going into adulthood with our family members that are, that can be highly contentious and fraught, you know, either you disagree ideologically or there's a power imbalance in the home. Um, and, you know, I love my parents very much and we, and they did their, their very best and I'm incredibly grateful. And there were power differentials in my home that made it incredibly hard to be a girl child, you know, not feeling like I could speak and be believed, um, you know, and I'm, I will say my sister and I, my twin sister and I, you know, we were, we definitely gave our parents, you know, run for their money. We didn't always behave. And so, um, and, you know, even that concept of behaving is, is one that should be interrogated. But I think for me, it was about where do I get to push back on what I'm seeing as patriarchy in my house, as um, even violence um, that is in some ways masquerading as parenting. Where do I get to say what I believe is right and wrong or where I feel like I've been aggrieved or harmed even um, in a way that feels like outside of the scope of parenting? And I'll say this is not I'm not a parent. So your listeners are all like, oh, you know, <laughs> what do you you know, maybe what do you know? But I'm a human and I was a child and I 
So I think, you know, my internal ethic kind of came from those experiences of trying to be my own person inside of a a, a kind of relationship of, with the power differential that just felt outsized and really hard. And, um, you know, I'm still working that out. I'm still trying to understand, you know, what was I taught that I want to hold on to? What was I taught that doesn't serve me any longer? What was I taught that was wrong, that I want to undo? And I more or less have made the decision to not have children. But, you know, I do teach a lot of people, students, you know, my staff at M4BL, my mentees, my trainees, you know, so there's so many of those lessons that I can adapt and take into my, my current work and my current relationships. All right. So you do a lot of stuff. You have done a lot of stuff. What's your, what's your favorite thing about the work that you do? Um, yeah, this is a good question. I, you know, what I think that I just am starting to arrive at having favorite things. You know, the work is, well, first, it's, you know, being rooted in your purpose as an individual. I think I'm, I have a, a young staff now at M4BL and they're arriving at who they are inside of this social movement ecosystem, right? Like you don't, when you go to kindergarten, activist is not one of the professions that is put up on the board to say like, what do you want to do? Right. So as we socialize little humans into becoming, you know, part of the fabric of society and we teach them what the possibilities are of who they can be in the world. We don't often say world builder, right. Um, you know, or organizer those, that's something that you have to learn as you start to learn about power and society and, you know, different dimensions of our identities. And, um, and so when I, I think my, my favorite things arrived when I found my purpose and, and in, as I kind of support my staff, I'm realizing that that's kind of a true human thing, right? Like it's very hard to feel like things are your favorite if you're, you know, struggling with what it is that you do. There's something very affirming and dignified in being able to say, you know, hey, I'm I'm Chanel Matthews. I I study the rhetoric and narrative power building of uh, black social movements in the 20th and 21st century. Like that's a <laughs> a very powerful thing to be able to arrive at. And I, I would say like in my my initial years at in movement, I didn't have that level of clarity and I wasn't happy. I didn't find joy in very much of my work because I felt like I had to be a generalist and that was stressful and I was anxious and awkward. And so now that I've kind of gotten to a place where I feel like the foundation of my life's work is, you know, clear, um, not to say it's like crystal because I think we spend our life figuring out who we are. I hope, you know, that we never really transcend the possibility of being better or different or learning more. My favorite part of the work is, um, you know, is the figuring out the puzzle of narrative power. You know, this idea that um, our job is to make what people cannot see visible to them. You know, this week's episode of This American Life is all about the invisible things that are right in front of us. Um, and I'll just give a trigger warning for your audience around sexual violence. The idea that we have a global movement to 
acknowledge and eradicate sexual violence in the Me Too movement is so significant. And also, so many people who experience sexual violence would not consider themselves survivors of rape. And that is a conundrum, right? How do you make a thing that is so clearly there apparent to the people who are experiencing it? And I thought that was a really powerful episode. They also talk about, you know, people who are displaced because of climate change, not believing in climate change. It's my, so I mean, in that, I think my favorite part of it is like the puzzle that requires us to try over and over again to make those facts, those ideas so clear to people. And that I get to do it in partnership with people who are interested in other parts of the work, who want to know how to get people to vote and how to run radical or very leftist or progressive candidates who have the interests of the people in mind or how to raise the money and resources and build alternative economies that allow us to thrive and people who are interested in the law. And M4BL is a really great place for that because we, we use a kind of hub and spoke model where we have a central leadership body but people really do the work in their different tables and those tables are aligned with different kind of issue areas and capacities. And so, yeah, it's really powerful to be one kind of spoke in that powerful hub. And my favorite thing is to, you know, figure that puzzle of narrative power out alongside people who also have a desire for black liberation. Yeah. So what, uh, what got you into the, the power of narrative that, that specific, track in your work so that yeah that's a good question i mean i think part of it is that i i went to journalism school i like that i always felt like writing was something i wanted to do you know um in grade school and middle school high school i found myself attracted to the english courses to to reading to history and so i remember like i entered some writing competitions and then i pursued a journalism um, degree in part because I thought that, you know, that that's where I saw the intersection of politics or what I understood as politics and writing. And um, when I graduated, you know, uh, I went to a fairly traditional program that it was the time digital media was like on the rise. This is 2000 or the early aughts, 2003 to 2007. I, I realized, you know, then journalism is incredibly powerful. I have such deep respect for journalist, my peers, you know, Aaron Morrison, Jamila King, Kat Stafford, who are, you know, Wesley Morris, who are reporting and doing incredible work and shaping how people understand the ideas and the, the people of our time. At the time, I didn't feel like that was the right work for me. It felt rest- I wanted to have more power over what was being said, the ideas that were being shared and how those ideas were being shaped. Um, if we if I think about, you know, my family's experience um, in the U.S., the ways in which narrative and story have shaped the Black experience have been profound. You know, when we think about narratives, which are collections of stories that are refined over time to really represent central ideas or beliefs, um, narratives have been used inside of the U.S. to shape Black people's experiences in incredibly opp- oppressive ways. It felt important for me to have a a role in shaping those stories. You know, I wanted to be a part of that. The combination of my own experiences of having a background in journalism, which is you know f- very w- one type of storytelling, and then having that kind of internal ethic kind of combined and merged in my organizing to kind of form the role of 
movement communicator, right? Whatever that meant. Um, that's what I was going to do was to help to tell the stories of the people who were organizing and the people they were organizing on behalf of and to shape a vision of society that is rooted in the experiences of the people who are, are closest to domination and oppression. Um, because it is through those stories that we can build a scaffolding for a new way of being a new world. And so I feel, you know, very tethered to this idea of narrative and narrative power. So looking at this, like thinking about your work life, if you had a, a magic wand that you could wave and change something about your work life, what would you change? I, I think, you know, I'd probably have more, more companions. You know, we, we have a big team at M4BL, but we're remote, 100% remote. And I, even though I really appreciate the independence that not having to go into an office provides and I value being able to make, you know, the privilege of being able to make decisions about my life, like going to the doctor in the middle of the day if I need to. Um, I value that. And I, I really do believe everybody deserves to be able to have options and make decisions about their work life and their labor um, that work for them. I'm really grateful for that. And it's lonely. You know, I joined a work space because I thought going somewhere once a week would help me meet new people. Um, so I guess I would just, you know, I miss sitting across the table with a group of people and brainstorming and sharing ideas and going back and forth and being sharpened in that way. So I'd say if I had a magic wand, I would, you know, have more companions, work companions to be able to share ideas and experiences with. Yeah. Yeah. It's as this has, everything has ground on has definitely been feeling that loss a little bit more. Um, yeah. And it, it's, as you said, it's to push each other as far as the work and stuff, but it's also, yeah, it's like having someone to help carry the load right someone to commiserate with or you know someone who, who really gets it right and it's not like kind of turn off your turn off your screen at home and then you have to sort of deal with it and you don't have anyone to process with you know that that is that can be tough yeah uh, yeah i i mean you know like uh labor and working conditions are changing for everybody and um as we all adjust to a new way of of being um i just think it requires a little bit of imagination and creativity to figure out how to get what you need at work and my work and my personal life are deeply intertwined um which is why you know it's weird even talking about my job as work it certainly is work it is labor i spend a lot of time laboring over how to you know build narrative power for black social movements and the ideas therein um you know, but it is also deeply personal. So I feel like we are, I was going to say we're in tough times. I feel like we haven't left tough times in a minute. So, so it's easy to kind of feel down. So this next question is kind of the opposite, like on a positive side, like what are you looking forward to in the next year? I don't, you know, I don't think that there's like, there's this binary of like, there were good times and now we're in bad times, which is weird because the times are always bad for somebody. 
um and uh we also have an interesting relationship to memory and nostalgia you know uh remembering the past is better than it actually was but for me i think that has you know understanding that there is no binary of good times and bad times i find a, a pretty solid equilibrium right and like really relishing in joy and really trying to learn from sorrow and and maybe get something out of that too you know um but in terms of what i'm looking forward to i accumulate my vacation and try to take it all at once because and your listeners will relate to this you know the work of communicators is hard on the nervous system you know you're I mean, you know, the social movement work itself, it doesn't really matter what role you play. It can be really hard on the nervous system in part because it requires you to be on your toes, to be ready and on, if you will, all the time. So that and, you know, just general childhood trauma <laughs> means that, you know, it's hard for me to relax, um, hard for my body to relax, uh, but also adult trauma too, you know, it's not all just in your childhood. But um, so in August, I'm going to take three weeks and... um. I have some loose plans right now to be somewhere warm and um, with, you know, the stack of books that I commit to reading and don't read every year. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. I look forward to that every year to the like, you know, being able to genuinely relax and not and delete the email app from my phone and not pay attention to my Slack channels and to have some time for self-reflection and self-assessment and, um, you know, Maybe meet some new people, eat some good food. It's good. Yeah, we got to take care of ourselves. It's incredibly important. Um, all right. So in your young life, you've already done so much. What else do you feel like you need to achieve? Um, you know, that's an interesting phrase around like needing to achieve. I think I spent, no, I think I know I spent my... 20s and my early 30s panicked that I was insufficient and that insecurity drove so many of my uh so many of my behaviors my thoughts and it was this idea that I had to achieve certain things by a certain age it's a you know we see these like 30 30 under 30 list and these um you know high profile young people and I always felt like I had to keep up you know, to do that. And I think that, you know, I think, I feel like I know that was a setup, you know, that was a, a very easy container, a sexy thing for people to sell, but I've slowed down in these last five years a lot and have started to be more thoughtful and rigorous about the work that I'm doing, asking more questions, asking for more feedback, um, plotting and planning a little bit more clearly, like what I want the outcome of the work to be and what people need, you know, how I can be of service uh, to my community. Um, <clears throat> you know, so when I figured out that I really wanted to focus on rhetoric and narrative power in Black social movements, I just want to do everything I can to contribute my experiences uh, to the kind of corpus or body of work that is in that field. And that means, you know, taking a unique millennial 21st century approach to the work, interrogating all of the historical concepts that have come before me and also the smart thinking and contributions of my peers, um, 
you know, one, one goal I have, um, even though I don't feel like I had to do it, but when I first entered social justice communications work, I was looking for a book, a primer to read on like with case studies and ideas that would help me understand and certainly have come across many useful tools, um, like Reimagining Change by Patrick Rinesborough and Doyle Canning is a good book. Narrative Power by Ken Plummer is a good book to read. Makani Themba's um, and Praxis Project's Racial Justice Manual, which was put out during the Obama era, is excellent. And of course, all the issue area stuff that I love to read. But I wanted something that combined that. So in 2019, the Radical Communicators Network, under the leadership of myself and my co-editor, Marjana Zakowska, commissioned an anthology that looks at uh, narrative uh, resistance narratives from social movements in the 21st century. So from 2000 to 2020, and we'll look at, you know, everything from anti-war on terror narratives um, after 9-11 up until now to the Me Too movement, the expansion of gender, the usage of pronouns, how we use different tactics like polling and art uh, to shape perceptions of ideas uh, will cover Palestine and the solidarity movements. And um, the, the hope is that this will be, um, you know, a co-edited, um, you know, multi-authored anthology, a love letter, if you will, to the field that, you know, activists and organizers and communicators of all shapes and sizes can use to, um, you know, guide their work or and really understand the historical context of narrative and storytelling in the role of building power for people who are typically excluded or left out of, you know, society. So that's one thing. And, um, and it's been really powerful to support the writers, the authors in this anthology, tease out their ideas, and to also just be in awe, in genuine awe of the brilliance of everyday people who are looking to make this world over. So that's something. And then I would say the other thing I... I, I would like to contribute, um, you know, and I'm willing this into existence in part. I've started to think about what this would look like is, um, you know, looking at the rhetoric and narrative power of Black social movements specifically over the last, you know, century and a quarter. Um, you know, what are the ways and how have Black organizers, communicators, strategists, politicized people, what words have they used, what symbols you know, how have they used their bodies in direct action to shape what people think? Um, what have been some of the challenges of that? And as we continue to evolve in what Cedric Robinson calls the Black radical tradition, how do we continue to use narrative and rhetoric to build a society that is in celebration and defense of Black lives? So for your the two projects, when are they? When do you think they're going to be out for people to grab? I mean, we still have some. Yeah, I mean the the first the anthology is um, we've got thirty one chapters commissioned. We the editing process is time consuming and and yeah. and it's incredibly humbling. <laughs> you know, like it just teaches you a lot about what you still have to learn. And I appreciate it. Um, you know, we're optimistic that we'll have a manuscript by the end of next year or first quarter of next year, but it would be a while yet. I mean, we'd say maybe the end of next year we could see the anthology um, would be ideal. And then for the other book, you know, it's really a longer term project. I have, you know, 11 years experience now to kind of comb through and also um, 
a lot of questions to ask and answer. So I would say five to 10 years. <laughs> no, maybe sooner. It just really depends. I, that's a, something, you know, that's a project that I hope to really take my time with. But I do have some interesting articles coming out this year that will be a bit of a precursor to that. So I look forward to sharing those with you and your audience. I'll put a reminder on my calendar five years from now. <laughs> I'll check back in. Like, what, 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 you working on this? What you got? <laughs> right. Um, so for everyone listening, just to kind of, would Radical Communicators be a good place to sort of just sign up, keep tabs on all of those happenings? Or how should, if someone's like, that sounds amazing, how should they sort of stay in the loop? Yeah, um, radcomsnetwork.org. Um, you know, to be 100 about it, you know, we're, we really are welcoming people into the network to learn how to be, you know, in relationship with other communicators, to be challenged on your ideas, to challenge other people on their ideas, you know, and by challenge, I mean, like, push each other to sharpen our assessments of the salute, the problems that we're working to solve and to be clear about the solutions and to root those, both of those and the experiences and the needs of, you know, oppressed communities. Um, so yeah, they can join the membership there. Uh, we really prioritize people who've been typically left out of establishment communication spaces, you know, so people of color, people with disabilities, uh, undocumented folks, trans people. Um, and then, you know, of course, check out the work of the Movement for Black Lives at m4bl.org. Yeah, my my uh, little testimonial here is Radcoms is amazing. I I remember when Chanel pitched it. Um, at least for me, I I heard her talk about it at the Frank uh, Gathering Conference. It's the first time. She's like, "I'm starting this thing. Mm. We'll see what happens." And <laughs> I think at the time you were signing people up with slips of paper or something like that there. I, yeah, I remember signing a sheet, I think. I was like, all right, let's do this. Uh, yeah, and it, it, so it's been amazing to see it grow and see the connections happen and people meet in real life. Um, I think that just restarted yeah. right in San Francisco, I think. Is that right? Or it was. Yeah, yeah and yeah, when I, when I actually spoke at Create Good Conference... If it was 2017, that was just a year. Radcoms was founded in 2016, and we had like 100 people who joined. And I think this is really kind of a testimony to how important it is to organize your field or your sector. Like we all come into the nonprofit, social justice, social movement space from different places, but like there's a synergy around the field of communications, and those people need to be organized too. Like we don't all come in with all the information we need to make, you know, the most um, justice oriented decisions for the people that we're working to serve. So, you know, after Trump was elected, I was like, what are, what are we going to do as communicators? What's our role to ensure he doesn't get reelected and to also help shape people's understanding at this particular moment in the next four years. And so RATCOMS was really birthed as a repository for our grief, for our anger, our frustration, and for our desire to want to build, you know, a collective community in opposition to, um, you know, right-wing forces to trumpism to fascism um and ongoing you know building of inclusive democracy so uh, i think what was really sh i was struck by is like 
how fast the network grew and how much of a desire there was for connectivity and belonging between communicators, not just here in the United States. We had 100 members to begin with and 300 in 2017 when we had our first convening. Um, but now we have 5,000 people and um, they're over in like almost every U.S. state and 20 countries. And to me, it's not really about quantity, right? It's really about like the the relationships and the kind of conversations people have. And we try to make this a place where we share information. We don't hide the ball. If you have polling, drop it. If you have resources, drop them. Democratize how we do this world building work and really highlight the people who are often invisibilized. So anyone listening, look it up, sign up, get in. Because the question is kind of for nonprofits, but I would say let's keep it tight to your sphere, your interest of, you know, being being an activist. Like, and you have newbies getting into this. What what advice would you have for them? I would say, you know, I have this Venn diagram in my desk that has three three different circles, and my mentor gave it to me and was like, you know, as you do your work, look at what you're you're attracted to. Look at what makes you most excited right like pay attention to the things that get you up every morning to finish doing the work you know that you dream about that you think about in the shower right like and once um so i would say to people like pay attention to those things and put your venn diagram by your workspace and you know as when those things come up fill that in so that when you say yes to projects you know exactly what you're saying yes to you know you're saying yes to something that's going to bring you joy and that you're going to be excited to work on and follow through on. Um, the other thing I would say is like, you know, there's a lot of movement, social movement culture, just like everywhere else, there's a set of behaviors and attitudes and personalities. And when I first came in, I was really insecure about not knowing all the things I thought I should know. And I was afraid to speak up. And I, you know, sat in a quiet kind of fear and silence for what felt like years, you know, um, that might happen to some of you. You might feel like you don't belong. You don't fit in. You don't know what other people know. You don't have anything to share. And and that is, I would say that's a natural experience that I don't, I wish it wasn't like that, but it is. So I would say, don't run away from that. Um, you know, sit in the discomfort. If you feel comfortable speaking, speak up, make your voice heard, make yourself known, you know, but also listen, listen to the people around you, learn everything you can. I was pretty arrogant in my early twenties and felt like I knew all there was to know sometimes. And I, I would like, you know, leave places too soon and not really get all that I could get out of it. Um, so I would say like, you know, have a have a good practice of self-assessment so you know what you need to learn and you know what you want to learn um, and what interests you and, you know, sit with the discomfort of not knowing. And then when you become a person who knows more, you know, treat the people that are still learning with a deep sense of respect of the way that you wanted to be treated. That's great. I love that. All right, let's transition here to, we're going to talk about feedback. So for you, how do you personally process criticism or feedback on your work? Yeah, I mean, that that has changed over the years in my 20s. Uh, I'm 30. I'll be 38 this year, by the way. I keep saying that. I mean, I could be 30 and you guys could be like, what do you mean you're in your 20s? But yeah, I'm 38. Um, still young. I don't call myself old. I um, feel great. <laughs> I, I wasn't good at receiving feedback. I mean, it was... You know, now I'm able to look back and understand that after some deep self-assessment work, growth work, some pain, some some honest feedback from people I love and respect that I was really defensive. Um, I used to just be think that, you know, feedback was an attack on who I was. So 
it took me years of really messing up receiving feedback and not being able to hear it to arrive at a place where like now I'm I clamor for it you know as I see it as a way of sharpening myself and being in good and right relationship with other people when they feel like they can tell me feedback that's not just this is great or you know whatever but like hey um this seems not politically aligned with what we're going for or it looks like you left out some ideas here or this isn't very strong you know I mean like those are all things that can feel hard to hear and certainly um like who's giving the feedback matters I'm I'm like for example I'm writing this piece it's 4,000 words it's a lot of ideas and I'm on my about to be on my sixth version of it and the fifth version at just as many edits as like the second or third and I was like oh my god I'm not making it anywhere and you know there is a part of that where it's like you know, I, I'm human. I'm like, oh man, you know, <laughs> oh man, all these, all these red marks, like, you know, just the, like, look at, the, just when you see it, you get like a body response. Like, that's like, oh, you know, that's like, oh, I feel bad, you know, like, but, but it's like, you know, th- with experience, you recognize that this actually is not a reflection of who I am as a person. This is a reflection of, um, you know, one, there's a lot of good ideas in here that that the editor remarked on. Why am I just paying attention to the bad ones? But the other thing is like, this is going to make, if I'm really thinking about it, if I'm pushing my ego to the side and saying, this isn't about you, Chanel, like this is actually about crafting an idea and a message that is complex and complicated and mired in a lot of different data for an audience who needs to understand it. And if they understand it, then they can act on it, right? But if they don't understand it, it becomes much harder to act on. So, you know, the thing I've learned over the years is really feedback, um, and hopefully it's given in a graceful and um, kind way, you know, is is so useful to the bigger picture of world building. Because if people feel like they can't tell you things, if they feel like you're going to bite their head off or respond badly, and by badly, I mean, you could like respond angrily, but you could also cry which is like not inherently bad, but it does, you know, puts the situation in a different kind of context and makes it a little bit more challenging, I think, to like advance the work in that moment. But I'm not convincing anybody, not trying to say that people shouldn't cry. I cry all the time, but I just mean, you know, it, it, it creates a different circumstance um, that the, that when you get that feedback, it, it, it can, it has an op- opportunity to make the world better. And, um, and that's how I see it now. That's great. Yeah. I feel like, I, I was the same, uh, I have the same experience, like through my twenties, ego got out of the cage. Right. And I was kind of an asshole about everything. And yes. it's like, yeah, it's, I've learned to mellow that out, listen more, kind of growl less about all yeah. of that. Yeah. So. Same. <laughs> On feedback, how do you like to receive it? What's like, you know, when you get it, what is something that you feel like you respond best to? I like to be asked first if I want feedback. <laughs> mm, that's interesting. Um, you know, can I, I, I think it's for me, like if I'm giving somebody else feedback, I need to like first assess like why I feel like I'm the right person to give this person feedback. Like that in and of itself is a good question to ask. Um, and because I also like to be prepared to receive the feedback, you know, because even though I, I've, I've, I've learned how to receive feedback better, I'm still learning, you know, intellectually in my brain, I know that the feedback is good. But sometimes, again, your body may like have a reaction that is rooted in your like lizard brain where you just, 
you know, yeah. <laughs> have a response. And then it's like, you can't, you know, I don't know. The body is so powerful that it's hard to regulate that if it comes in and you weren't ready for it. And then what it might fuck up your whole day. So like, <laughs> I just want somebody to ask me like, you know, Hey, can I give you feedback? Is now a good time? Like that's, yeah. that would be really great. And, um, and then, you know, I would just want to make sure that I think, um, like it helps for me to understand, you know, like the context of this feedback, like, like if I'm getting feedback from a person who's not really invested in me, but who's giving me feedback based on their own kind of perceptions it and their own desires, I think that changes the way that I can be you know, part of that conversation. But if I know that they're really interested in me and like my growth and making sure that I'm, you know, doing the best work that I can do, then yeah, that, that feels different. It feels like, okay, cool. Like this is going to be something that is going to make me sharper and therefore will make me a bit, you know, be better in service to the communities that I, I work on behalf of. So those are some things that feel important to me, but you know, I'm, I used to be really delicate and precious about my ideas and I don't feel that way anymore. Um, so I, I'm happy to have feedback in a number of different ways, but yeah, those, those kind of like, is it now a good time? And can I give you feedback? Those feel important questions to start with. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. Like, sometimes you just are showing, like, you just want people to look at your picture and say, yeah, that looks that looks pretty. And then maybe we can talk about it later. <laughs> right? You know, yeah. I, I'm not ready to hear about that color blue yet. Just, you know, just give me a little kudos that this project got done or it's on its way. And then, yeah. then we can yeah. talk about it. Yeah, I mean, and then we have to, like, ask ourselves, you know, like, and I could be like this sometimes, you know, why do I feel the need to, like, give this person feedback on this color blue when they just sent me this report? Like, I'll have their, you know, I've had an experience where it's like, you deliver something and the only, you know, something massive even, and the only thing you get is like, why is this like this? Or like, I don't like this, could you do this? And you're like, but what about everything else? Like, yeah. <laughs> Was yeah. there anything you did like? Like yeah. that would be nice to hear. <laughs> uh, all right. So, what uh, what style feedback does not work for you? You know, I mean, I, I don't think it, it's just me, maybe, but like you know, things that feel like um, mean spirited um, or unintentional, like you know, just hadn't really thought it through, or you didn't like look at the thing, you know, and you just jumped to a conclusion or read a headline or something like that. Um, I think it just for me is like a, a feedback that isn't um, grounded in like a spirit of generosity and you know growth and a desire for transformation and something good and more powerful. But you know, I, I everybody gives feedback differently because we, you know, again, this is not something we're taught um, how to get feedback. I receive feedback. So like, where do you learn these things? So I have a lot of grace, yeah. grace for yeah. people who are doing it and maybe do it in a way that feels challenging to me. They don't know what's challenging to me, you know? So um, yeah, I mean, I'll stop there. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I have a long list of things. I just want people to be like, you know, kind about it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's interesting as, you know, Don's sort of peeling back the layers on this and how, you know, because we've over the last 12, this year will be our 12th wow. year. Um, wow. We've had, geez, over 100 different uh, clients, which means 100 plus different bosses, so to speak. 
Right. So we've seen a many different versions, many different um, iterations of this. Yeah, it's amazing how sometimes it is unintentional. Sometimes it is working out, you know, it's their own sort of, they're working out their own issues through feedback, you know, and it's like, I don't, I don't know. It, yeah, it is fascinating, though, how it's not taught and you just have to figure it out as you go or you never figure it out and it becomes a problem. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right. The biggie. <laughs> burnout let's talk about burnout real quick let me let me start before i get into the questions let me ask you one thing what kind of experiences have you had with burnout have you had you have you experienced burnout before yeah i mean i i don't know that i would have called it that before um for me the way that it manifests is um i start growing resentful of the work like the work to me is because it's my life's work because i am passionate about it i am interested in it i'm curious i think about it all the time you know it's hard to feel like it's it it doesn't feel like a burden my labor doesn't feel like a burden though i mean i'm not like there are things i have to do like as a director of communications like i have to do a budget that's annoying i don't like numbers um i have to like you know like accept all these invoice submissions and like accept or reject vacation requests like that's not stuff i like wake up can't wait to do like you know there's there are like very important administrative tasks that are tedious and i find to be annoying that i would you know that i'm like not dreaming about but i think the burnout the idea that like i've grown resentful of my work comes when yeah i haven't taken enough breaks where i feel like i don't have enough leisure time things you know away from my computer enough time in my brain, own brain without the thoughts and ideas of others to let my brain really relax and process what I've experienced, what I've learned, what I've unlearned, who I've met, other people's ideas. You know, you need time, downtime to do that. And, you know, for me, my day starts at 5.30 um, every morning. I'm, I'm a very early riser. Um, my best thinking time is the morning. Sometimes I also get a workout in the morning, but that's usually in the afternoon these days. But, you know, they start at 5.30 and it ends at 5.30 or 6. Um, so the days are long. I'm often working weekends because I'm working on other projects that require my time outside of my MVBL hours or evenings. Um, you know, so that like, I think for me, I'm not imposing a, what people would call, I think work-life balance kind of framework onto my job because it simply doesn't work that way for me, but the burnout can still happen, you know, um, and I can still be resentful of the fact that I just don't have any Chanel time. So, you know, I've, yeah, I've experienced it in my 11 years of doing this work. Um, I think the other thing about it is like, it took me a while to realize what was happening to me because, and somebody just gave me this feedback the other day when my, my mentor last night, when you are the kind of person who can, um, for whatever reason, handle a significant load of work or responsibility, you tell yourself a story about who you are, right? I'm the person who can handle this. I, I you put yourself in a position, you grow, you know, you become practiced and grow that muscle of being that person who can handle all this stuff. And so then 
when you are experiencing burnout, you convince yourself in many ways that that's just simply a byproduct of being this person who knows how to handle all these things, right? Like, and then that can be affirmed by the people around you, you know, like, because I do, you know, communications, part of the work for many of your listeners will know is crisis, right? Like, what happens when there's a crisis? Who Who's contending with it? And um, so I've become the person who in a crisis, it's my job to be calm and to work through ideas and things like that. And so a lot of that, I fed myself a story about, you know, well, that's not burnout because like, you know, this is your job. But if you take a step back and kind of look at your life and like, you know, the hours and you accumulate the time you have that's not sleeping and not working and you realize it's not very much. Um, yeah, I mean, that definitely changes things a little bit, you know. That's an interesting thought that you start to adopt burnout as your personality, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, so once you've identified that, what kind of things do you do now to avoid burnout? This is going to sound ridiculous, but I, yeah. I schedule everything. Um, I schedule every moment of my day is blocked out on my calendar because what allows me to forego burnout is by scheduling in my leisure time, scheduling in my downtime. So, you know, I will look at my calendar every week, the week before, block out my breaks. I actually put my breaks on my calendar. I put my lunch, I put my workout, I put my leisure activities, I put my dinners with friends, so on and so forth. And I systematize everything. So I'm a systems thinker. It helps me, you know, structure my life in a useful way. It helps me manage my projects and support my team. So I will look at my year, make my vacations. Um, I will put my breaks on my calendar, my time off, my all of that. And then I really try to, you know, adhere to that. That really helps me to mitigate burnout because I have breaks built in. I have time off built in. Um, I know I can know when that's going to happen. If I don't do that, then every hour of my day will be scheduled with work. So that's, that's what works for me. And it, it seems to be going well. I think that's, that's a fantastic tip. And it's one that we use too. And I think, uh, part of our thing too, is you have to honor that, right? That, that, um, that workout just time is just as important as yeah. your, you know, your weekly check-in with the team. But when it comes to having meetings and comes to your calendar, because it's easy, like it doesn't mean anything if you're able to overwrite it, right? And be like, oh, well, I'll not do that workout today because I really need to get yeah. something else done yes. or someone else wants to meet yeah. with me. Um, yeah. So, I, yeah, it doesn't sound ridiculous to me because you just described our lives too. Like, everything is scheduled and i don't see it as you as a bad thing it's just this is the framework that drives busyness stress sometimes so we also use it to drive joy and yeah. entertainment yeah that's right i i agree you know. and you know um it, I think people will be like, oh, you don't, you know, that, that seems really rigid or that seems, you know, like you, you have to schedule every, and I'm like, well, I have a lot of interest. I have a lot of things that I want to do and people that I want to meet and things I want to experience. And so, yeah, you know, time is a construct and we've all decided that we're going to 
adhere to it. So I'm going to manage it and not let it manage me. This is kind of a big question here. So, you know, what keeps you coming back to work, doing this work every day? I mean, a lot of what I shared with you about why or how I got here, you know, um, I mean, a few things, you know, like we are all we're like humans. We are kind of purpose driven people, right? Like we like to figure out what interests us and follow those passions. This just happens. My job is also my passion. You know, I'm passionate about uh, convening people and sharing ideas and being part of you know, groups that are looking to make things better for folks. I'm passionate about storytelling and writing and idea generation. I'm um, passionate about, you know, the Black experience in America being one that is rife with joy and pleasure and health and wealth, however you define that. Um, So I get to, you know, come back to that every day and work alongside people I love and respect to do that. So get to come back to that. my family is still very much one who's living a very black American experience. My my mom and my stepdad are, you know, working class people who work very long hours for, um, you know, decent wage, but it should be more. Um, they've worked incredibly hard my entire life and I wish that they could retire now. I wish they could be done with that um, and they can't, you know, so what what, you know, what is my responsibility in ensuring that future generations can get paid what they're due for their labor and also, you know, live a life of leisure at some point in their eight, in their old age, you know. Um, I saw, and, you know, I have a, just even anecdotally had a cousin who was missing for the last couple of weeks who suffers with mental health um, complications. And, you know, I want for people like her to have somewhere to be, somewhere to go. Um, so, you know, when I think about what keeps me bringing back, sometimes I will ask myself, well, what else would I be doing it to me? It's like, once I knew the, uh, like how power was shaped in our society and the challenge and how unfair, uh, how unfairly resources are distributed and, you know, how much unfairness and theft and oppression there is in the world, I can't unknow, you know, and because I have that internal ethic, I you know, I think about like this question often comes up, what would you be doing if you weren't doing this? And I, you know, I like acupuncture. The first time I got it, I thought, my gosh, like, I wish I could have, everybody could experience what I'm experiencing right now. This is so amazing. So I thought maybe I would be an acupuncturist, you know, but I would still be an acupuncturist with an an internal ethic, you know, and a desire to drive social justice or do good in the world. And um, so, you know, why not continue to do what I'm doing? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> like that yeah it's essentially like once you see something you can't unsee it um okay last section it's kind of rapid fire what's your favorite word serendipitous what's your least favorite word moist <laughs> that's come up a few times <laughs> <laughs> what's your personal nonprofit cause or passion uh my passion is uh rhetoric and narrative power in the black radical tradition what nonprofit cause gets too much attention i don't think any of them get enough attention uh what's your favorite cuss word fuck (laughs) that is also very popular (laughs) Uh, as you talked about before what profession other than your own would you like to attempt 
I would like to try to be a pilot. And although I, yeah, I'm interested in acupuncture. I know that it requires, you know, like very serious bedside manner as you put needles into people's bodies. So the, the idea, like, you know, in my dreams, I'm an acupuncturist, but I, I don't know if I want to actually try it. <laughs> The pilot's interesting. What's what's driving that? If you always wanted to to I mean, be a pilot to fly, or is there something else to that? Well, I mean, I just I think there's something really fascinating. There's the level of trust right that is required of pilots that you know people to have of their pilots. There's it's also like the job that you have to get right 100 of the time. <laughs> you know, that's true. That's um, true. And so there's a level of rigor to that. But then there's also this idea of having the power to be above the clouds, to fly, to like, to look at the world from that level, that height, and the magic that must come from that. And you know, it's a job also that as like has a manual. Like this is how you fly a plane. There's no manual for world building and social justice. You just like, you know, have to figure it out as you go. So there's something about the structure of that job that seems cool. And what uh, nonprofit professional or maybe organizational communications team would you love to talk to on this podcast? Wow, so much cool work happening. Um, I would love to talk to or hear from... Uh, maybe like the Pop Culture Collaborative is doing really cool work. And the folks over at Narrative Initiative are doing cool work as well. I know that the Pop Culture Collaborative really leverages pop culture, movies, television, music, video games to spread, you know, inclusive messaging. And I think that's really smart. That's really cool. Go look at Tim. Cool. Uh, I have... I have one last challenge for you. Okay. <laughs> the challenge would be in brevity because I feel like this is maybe um, a whole podcast series in itself. And that is for your for narrative building. What's the answer or how in the hell did we build a narrative platform that can upend our, some of our longstanding narratives in this country that are problematic and also compete, defeat, however you want to put that, the, the right-wing narrative machine. And you get, mm. you get three sentences to answer that. <laughs> um... There is no one right answer. That's my answer. <laughs> That's yeah. And is that because did you say that the problem's too big, too wide, too deep? I would say because there's no single individual, there's no single problem. There are many problems. So when we think about even how to frame the problem that we're working to solve, even those of us on the kind of left, leftist folks would define those problems differently. And so it requires a lot of collaboration and collectivity to even arrive at defining the problem, not to mention the solutions and the actions people then need to take. Well, on that note, I think we are done today. 
<laughs> Thank you so much for coming and being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And I always love talking with you. I, it's, um, I think I've said this before, but it makes me very happy and hopeful that you're in the world and doing this work. Oh, thank you, Brian. I feel the same about you and Don. And thanks for having me today and to all your listeners for tuning in. Thank you for listening. If you want to get all the new episodes sent to you as we release them, subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And until then, keep creating good.